0: Calling all podcasters, musicians, vloggers and reporters and everyone else who wants crystal clear recording that's super portable. The Sure Motive family of microphones makes studio quality audio that's as simple as plug and play. Many of the world's top podcasters rely on Shure. And with a Motive line of iOS and USB microphones, portability is now your friend. Imagine being able to get great audio quickly and easily from your phone, tablet, or computer. Simply visit Shure.com slash Motive to start getting great audio for your content now. That's S-H-U-R-E dot com forward slash M-O-T-I-V.
1: Okay, we're ready. All right, I'm ready to roll, are you?
0: You're the weird scenes inside the gold mine. You're essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult and entertainment. Tonight, in the shadow of giants, the weird world of Amicus Films. <laughs> in. In the wake of the surprising runaway success of the Hammer Horrors, any number of budget-conscious producers suddenly saw a golden in Mar Hills, ranging as far distant as Roger Corman's California production house with the much-lauded Hammer-derived post-cycle, and as close to home as Kevin Francis's short-lived Tyburn, Tony Tentz's far more credible Tygon, and the Shepperton Studios-based, yet American-founded company with an obsession for EC Comics and the Portmanteau format, namely Amicus Films, featuring a plethora of both stateside and UK luminaries of the silver screen past and present, Rosenberg and Sabato Kowalski's English Cash Cow dropped many a Saturday afternoon syndicated chiller on television audiences, and the filmgoers whose airings preceded such. Featuring trilogies, quartets, and quadrillas of short form shutters for the monster kids of the sixteen seventies. But equally, if not far more interesting were their non-anthologized efforts, which ranged from a pair of highly juvenile, even abysmal Doctor Who opuses based on previously aired and far more po-faced serials, and two of the most mock science fiction films of their era, the Terranauts that came from Beyond Space, to a trilogy of Quirky Burroughs Pellucidor adaptations, but more importantly, a handful of fascinating horror films, The Skull, The Deadly Bees, The Cushingly Misfire, Eye Monster, and Now The Screaming Starts. And the delightful werewolf-break-sporting exploitation crossover The Beast Must Die. And who knows, we may even touch on Sebastik's post-Amicus efforts, The Uncanny, and The Monster Club as well. So prepare to scream and scream again as we talk one of the strongest yet most strangely flawed pretenders to the Hammerian Horror Throne, the fascinatingly bizarre Amicus films. So, uh... Good evening, and welcome to the, uh, I think this is the fourth episode now, of Weird Seasons Inside the Goldmine, our fifth season. Your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my patient co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, tonight we are talking Amicus Films. I'm sure you have more background on them, but I'll just give a quick overview. It was a company that was a little bit strange because... Most of us think of it as a British company. Most people put it hand-in-hand and often second to Hammer Films and alongside other companies like I mentioned, like Tygon and Tyburn and what have you. But yet, it was actually, even though it was based in England at and Studios, it was American producers and screenwriters, Milton Sabotsky and Max Rosenberg, who were behind this venture. They had previously done City of the Dead, which we mentioned last week, uh, the Excellent Horror Hotel, Uh, back in 1960 or 61, I think it was. Uh, Very good film 60. And possibly inspirational to Mario Bava's Black Sunday, but certainly contemporary to it. And it's been, I mean, even to this day, I mean, what was it, in the 90s when uh, Bruce Dickinson and Iron Maiden did Bring Your Door to the Slaughter? That entire video was from that movie. You know, it's still hanging around in the zeitgeist today, if you will. So anyway, Soboski was living up in Canada for a bit, And this was after they had done uh, Amicus. Amicus ran from about 62 to, uh, I think, 77. So they had a good 15-year run. And then he did a couple of more films, and then I believe he kind of either dropped out or passed on. I know he had done some things later on, but it wasn't anything of note that I can think of. Some Stephen King adaptations or something, possibly for TV. So is there anything you wanted to say about Amicus' general setup? Well, uh, let's see.
1: see. I mean, essentially, yeah, I mean... You mentioned Tyburn, which is funny, because there's a really good book on Tyburn I got a couple of years ago uh, uh, from a British author. It was actually printed in Britain. And I, I, I think I got something similar on Amicus, but it's funny. Amicus is always the lesser known of the British horror things, even though you would think Tyburn would have been. Yeah, Although Amicus had some very financially profitable movies for them. Um, primarily the ones we're going to discuss today are the uh 2 or the anthology type films, although there are a couple of things, I, I hate to speak for myself but I think I might like more than you do Okay. and that's the last few features because I, I, I don't know, I think they're charming films but um, yeah you know, Milton Sabatsky, Max Rosenberg, they're from New York probably, <laughs> um, you know, two Jewish guys, uh they came in, but they started actually early, uh, they tried to get the inn into the uh, UK market. You know, it's Trad Dad and Just for Fun. You know, yeah. it was kind of let's let's dance. You know, kind of like <laughs> jazzy. You know, when, when when Trad Jazz and Early Rock and Britain was making that crossover, mm-hmm. uh, what was his name? What was his name? Uh, he did Fame. Uh, not Bowie, the other one. Um, David Essex. Oh, and, okay. Yes.
0: Wow. Forgot yes. About that name. <laughs> I was associated yeah, yeah. with
1: glam rock. Yeah, you're right. That, when David Essex was starting out, Adam Faith was starting out. These were mm-hmm. very handsome guys who had talented singers. Yeah, you know, they did a lot of TV. They did the occasional movie, and these kind of guys were very popular with the teens in Britain. And we're talking early Beatles have broken out. Stones have broken out, but still, like on our side of the of the ocean. Yeah, we had Presley, we had Pat Boone, we had all this stuff going on. And you, you have to have someone that appeals to the, the normalcy, let's say, before we all realized what was really normal. Yeah. <laughs> and So uh, Essex and Faith were the kind of guys that were appealing to a lot of these people. So there was a market for these kind of movies. Now, of course, they couldn't afford these actors, singers, some people did, and maybe for a show down the road, we, you know, Stardust, that'll be the day. You know, i some movies we might discuss sometime in another show. Uh, actually, two pretty good movies uh, with some great, great musicians, uh, Dave Edmonds, Ringo Starr. I mean, they're actually well-lauded films, but for Amicus' first foray into, like, let's feel the... Uh, the uh, ocean here. <laughs> yeah, Feel the Market. Thank you. Feel the Market. Yeah, they did the, a lot of these kind of movies. And they did okay, I guess. But, you know, like, we got Elmore Schwartz uh, <laughs> you know, to be this movie. Uh, okay. Stanley Stevens <laughs> to be this thing. You know, <laughs> they play, played it off with a nudie cutie and like, you what's know, well, stay for a nudie cutie? Fuck this other picture. <laughs> and John Llewellyn Moxie, yeah, you know, this is the weird one. You know, City of the Dead, Horror Hotel. That this is not an amicus film. They were just the producers of it, and mm-hmm. uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, it's we talked about this film a couple of times. Yeah, and not only in reference, but uh, it's <laughs> it's an amazing movie. It is. But I think their production was not as on point as other things going on. And I'm not quite sure what happened for a three or four year period, but when Hammer really just hit like a, a, a nail, world lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The funny thing was, although these guys came in with an anthology film, they also decided to go in what was very popular in the Doctor Who, who movies, two of them. Yes. Feature films, <laughs> and uh, uh. I I don't hate them as much as you do. Oh god!
0: But (laughs) but uh, yeah, I I give I give them credit for uh, trying. Well, what I understand sort of happened. This is very vague and basic. They actually went directly to Terry Nation because the Daleks, you know, were and still are an enormous, enormous thing over in the UK. Like they never were and probably never will be here i mean this is the whole thing about you know they always talk about oh yes the children i was hiding behind the couch peeking over the couch to see the monsters on doctor who and you know everybody loved the little pepper pots and they all like made them into daleks and you know dalek mania they actually had a thing like this uh it was there's was board games there was comic books there were serials there were all kinds of tie-ins to this stuff terry nation came into a freaking gold mine over this ridiculous concept right And what they said was, well, screw, you know, Doctor Who's doing well, we'll just screw the producers and all that, we'll just go right over their heads, go right to Terry, who was smart enough of all writers and things in there to maintain his, you know, authorship and uh, rights on the Daleks. So every time Doctor Who uses them, they have to pay the nation a state money. It's not like the Cybermen or whatever else. So they went right to him and bought the rights to make these two movies for something stupid like, you know, 500 bucks or something. 500 pounds probably, but, you know, it was really a small amount of money, even back then. So what they did was... Eh, okay, that's enough money. We're not going to waste our time actually making a story. We'll just take the scripts from two serials that had already aired, which I think were, well, one of them was Daleks' Invasion of Earth. Uh, Maybe the first one is actually based on the Daleks, the original one from 1960, whatever it was, three. These are all from the Hartnell era, and a lot of these are lost. They were both. The problem is um, Peter Cushing came in. And, see, my thing about Dr. Who, we discussed it during our Dr. Who show, Hartnell, we saw the pilot many, many years after seeing the original takes that they had on TV and on VHS and whatever else. And both me and my wife were like, wow, this is so much different. We like him more. He's more irascible. He's more not even that likable, but kind of like a Colin Baker approach to the Doctor. He's kind of just shoving it in your face and being a real pain in the ass. And we liked that. We thought that was funny. And I was like, oh, this is great. But they decided when they were filming this stuff that, oh, no, we've got to make it more kid-friendly. This is a show for children. So they made him more this Oh, and grandfather, oh, you give this silly little laugh, like you know, like Santa Claus or whatever the hell, and made him safer. And from there on, even though we've come to appreciate some of his episodes since, I just couldn't stand Hartnell the Hartnell era for that reason. But the original one, the way he wanted to play it, was perfect. We enjoyed the shit out of that pilot episode. So... Cushing came in, took the Hartnell doddering grandfather version, and made it even safer and goofier, like, oh, I love children, I'm like Santa Claus, oh. and really kind of, not even camped it up, just made it super kid-friendly and safe, and he's almost like a doddering inventor type, like, oh, wait did I put this over here, oh, it must be here, oh, can you help me with this? It's like if you watch Santa Claus the movie and you see the way they play Merlin, he's like that. And these are just abysmal, abysmal, boring films. He doesn't really have a lead like uh, back in those days. They originally, they had the teachers like Ian, who was not so special. But they also had another fellow. He's a nice guy, though. I met him recently. I think Steven was his name. And he was more of for UK at the time, more of like a hunky type, and he kind of carried the show for him, if you will. Like, okay, here's the, for the youth appeal, whether it's like, you're the young boy who wants to be, you know, do, or if, if you're the girl or the wife, that's like, hmm, what a nice piece of fluff there. Uh, <laughs> he did that role for them. And this these movies lacked that entirely. They had, who the hell was the, the side guy? I mean, you know, like people like Bernard Cribbins in the damn things. Andrew Kier was in one of them, which is good, but I don't know, It just, it really... Bad versions of the identical series that you already saw on TV and the ones you saw on TV, despite their flaws, were twenty times better. So that's all I gotta say on these two. So what, what did you think about these since you like them more?
1: Oh, I, I, I actually like them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you hey, asked it. No.
1: <laughs> you ruined my childhood. No, I know, <laughs> I, I I actually like them. I, I remember seeing them on the, I did not see them in the theaters I was too young, sorry
2: <laughs> uh,
1: I, I actually liked them I saw them on TV, late night of course because, yes uh, Cushing was playing him as a doddering you know, you know, much like you described but the thing about these films for me was that there, there was much like a lot of the macabre films we cover on the show It was all not... And this is my viewpoint of this. All was not one way or another. It's like, okay, so you got the lead character playing it this way, whether as directed or whatever. And then there's a lot of additional weirdness. Both these films have a lot of additional weirdness going on. They're not straight cutesy movies. You have scarred, disfigured people in one. You have really downbeat fucking... While well, the whole Earth's population has been reduced to this group of people. Wow, you know, well, I so mean, so that's so just I, taking I, over the I, world. So how upbeat could it be? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I, I always like Cushing. I mean, even even in his his later period, uh, until later later period, where you know, very much uh, the Beagles movie, that kind of thing. <laughs> but. Um, but I always liked him, and I thought he was fine in this. I always had such a warm heart for the man, and I liked his imp- interpretation because it was different at the time. I, I know it's it was not um, oh gosh, I can't find the word, but it, nuanced, adult friendly? Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I mean, because the, the ones that were going on in the serialized version that was shown in the BBC, etc., now available on D V D video, Blu-ray and Your Mother. Um, <laughs> it's like yo, that's that's canon. That's canon. This was not canon. Right. As not canon? Gold Globus folks, but can we talk canon in, films once, yeah? <laughs> yes we did. But no, this is you know, canon, as you know. If you don't know what we're talking about, go pick up a dictionary. Anyway, <laughs> um this is different. And I like them. I they're not great films, I always thought they were enjoyable. But but what they really were good at and which made them money and it was something they kinda of stuck to for a while with these anthology
0: films. Yes. Which the next one I'm sure you want to go into is Doctor Terror's House of Horrors, which was the same mm. year I believe as the first Daleks movie. And I, this is my quick little notes here. It says, surprisingly, while we're grading on a very relative scale and saying this, one of the stronger amicus portmanteaus was its first, with Peter Cushing reading tarot cards for his fellow passengers on a train, who include Christopher Lee and Donald Sutherland, by the way. Uh, one guy goes home to Scotland to renovate his family estate pre-sale to a new buyer, but finds a weird coffin behind a wall in the basement. It turns out that his family put down some werewolves many years ago, and he's just set an old curse in motion. That's a decent one. Uh, there's a boring knockoff on Day of the Triffids, is another one, a proto Curse of the Voodoo, anybody who's seen that movie, where a Bix Biterbecky kind of jazz trumpeter uses a Haitian voodoo chant as part of his new composition with predictable results, and you've seen this before. I think they've used this in a couple of anthology series as well so you've seen this many times if you know your 60s and 70s British shows and television or whatever a silly proto version of The Hand that Michael Caine movie or is it post The Crawling Hand those of you who've seen the 50s one uh, or early 60s Uh, it's a piece involving a blowhard art critic who's Christopher Lee being mocked and taken down by an equally snotty artist Michael Gow so you aren't rooting for either one they're both assholes who he winds up running over and crushing his painting hand only to be menaced by the disembodied hand later on you know, not great, okay, but it's definitely watchable. And there's one where Donald Sutherland marries a French girl, only to discover she's a vampire, and there's a cheap twist ending. I was not happy about that, but okay. While it doesn't follow what became the amicus formula of having one good segment and a bunch of lousy filler ones, that can also be seen as a plus, as none of them are actually bad either, like I said. All of them, even the one that's like a boring knockoff at Triffids, is just watchable. You know, all of them are sort of middling Saturday afternoon or <laughs> entertainment in the end, And it also isn't just stealing bad EC comic stories. It seems to have some actual production value. So among these things, it's not the best of them, but it's you know for an Amicus uh, anthology film, it's pretty strong. Oh yeah, it's it's not the
1: best, it's not the worst. Uh, Freddie Francis, who was a very fine cinematographer. Look at look at those folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Um, I think collectively and. Individually, these stories are not as creepy as later episodes would be, mm-hmm. but there is an undercurrent of macabre, which you know they carry quite well through these things. And um, I think despair—despair despair was the the overriding feeling I got from this at the end. Yeah, also, we're talking about 65, I believe, right? Yes. 65, 66? Yes. So, you know, it's funny. We mentioned this a lot of times in other shows. That was like a, a portal year. Yes. Up to 65, 66, you, things were still associated with a different age. Yeah. Once we hit 66, 67, 67, 68, things were a lot different. And. We discuss that in other shows about other themes, about other subjects, directors, individuals. A lot changed in those two fucking years. But I still think the vampire, even though it's a little cutesy in a way, was still probably one of the stronger. I would say, you know, if we're going to look at this this movie of the episodes, because it was like, oh, damn. You know, you, kinda, you got an all-damn oh, moment at
0: the end there. It's like, yeah. See, my problem with this film, Beyond Nostogenous, that you mm-hmm. mentioned, because we, as you say, and we said many times before, once you start hitting 66, Summer eleven, Love and all that, all of a sudden the floodgates open and you've got a very different mentality of the yes. way people view society and the government and family and religion and sex and everything becomes much more modern and contemporary and very watchable. Uh, before that it's kind of like an alien age that goes back to like the fifties and the twenties. Well not so much the twenties, but you well, know, a little more stodgy. But beyond all of that, mm-hmm. my one problem with this film, if you're it gonna is. take it a little bit deeper, is that there is an undercurrent, which, you know, okay, it was nineteen sixty five, was earlier days, but of fear of the foreign. Because first off you've got the one in the Curse of the Voodoo, right, which is pretty obvious, I don't have to spell that one out. And then with the vampire, because what was the problem? Why did he, this guy have to, you know, why was he convinced into murdering his wife? We're not going to get into the specifics of this. But nonetheless, it's the bottom line is because she was a French girl. Oh, you're a British girl. You can't marry a <laughs> French girl. I mean, it, there's always this kind of, and it's light. I mean, you may be reading a little bit into it, but it pops up in story after story. It's like... Yeah, and you know, again, you fear wow. of progress too, because Christopher is like a modern art guy, and, oh no, he's wrong because he mocked this other guy's more traditional works, and you know, he has this thing where he had a monkey paint and that made a big joke out of him, because like, he praised it, like oh, this is great art, and like oh, here's the here's the artist, and it's a monkey, and he mocks him, follows him around, like screwing up his speeches, like oh look, it's you praised the monkey's art, and like ha ha ha, trying to ruin the guy's life or reputation whatever, like really nice guy, uh, but the bottom lines is there's always this kind of fear of the new fear of the foreign totally reactionary sort of vibe going on through it underneath just buried beneath the surface and you know i'm not that kind of guy that really kind of bothers me and on a deeper level it's not like oh my god i'm not gonna watch this film it's just like really come on grow up so well, go
1: ahead wow well, well, it's like you're describing a scorsese film pre-1972 <laughs> <You> no <know, laughs> it's, <true> it's <laughs> Yeah, like after 1972, he's like, fuck it. Let me me tell you what it's really like. Um, Yeah, yeah, I see where you're at, but I'm just, no, I'm not entirely disagreeing with you. I'm just saying that picture is of a particular time at the
0: cusp of that time period. But the next, you you want to mention the skull? This one here is one that I, okay, I hate to say I like a lot, but I really do. It's the most Hammer-esque of all the Amicus films, I think. This one grips another Hammer director, Freddie Francis, and its biggest stars, Cushing and Lee, for the tale of two occultist art collectors. Uh, they battle each other at auction and through the services of an unscrupulous go-between, which is sleazy Patrick Weimar. <coughs> Unfortunately, one of the choice items he brings to first one of them and then the other is the skull of the Marquis de Sade, who rather than just being you know, a pervert and philosopher, is suddenly he's, he's turned into a serial killer. Hey, gotta love Hollywood. Uh, possessing whichever of the men possesses the skull at any given moment, and forcing them to sleepwalk their way into thefts and murders or near murders through the use of bizarre curse of the crimson altar, crimson cult style, psychedelic dream sequences that involve a judge. Nigel Green, Nalan Smith from the Fu Manchu films, is poking around at a goofy mustache as the police inspector who investigates these things. The sets are lush and the whole thing is pretty damn creepy. Some don't like this for whatever reason. Probably, um, I think the reason for that is there's a cheap, dark, passage-like first-person camera through a paper cut out of a skull that they like to use. But it was always a favorite of mine. And both Cushing and Lee get a respectable amount of screen time often together. So, hey, sold! (laughs) I don't know, I'm stuck on Pervert and Philosopher. Sounds like myself. Uh, me too. <laughs> yeah, sure, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh
1: you know what? I I I never really I've I watched this film so many times. I was never quite taken with it. I'm not sure what the address what the reason was. Ultimately why it it for me I've seen thousands of folks, I've seen thousands of movies. I just think, and some I've seen many a times, even the ones I wasn't thrilled with. Because I always like to give something another chance, another chance, another chance. Or I haven't seen this in two years, five years, six months, whatever. The skull is something I've never really taken to. I'm not quite sure why. I will say the intro's a little boring
0: but, flashback, but...
1: You no, know, not so much that. It's just something about it is just... I I don't know, I, found, I always found it very dry... I think they could have found another way to do it. Maybe, maybe not. It's certainly a different kind of film. It's certainly unique
0: in its own bubble. But not a, not a picture personally I'm thrilled with. no. Yeah. So uh, next to is something called The Psychopath of Freddie Francis again and Patrick Weimark again. I did not see it, so I can't comment. Oh, uh, good one. All right, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. Uh, I, I don't want to give a lot of weight.
1: People should go out of the way to see us. I'm sure somebody will put this back out on DVD or Blu-ray. Hopefully it won't be, hey, I found something in my uncle's closet code red. But, <laughs> um, yeah, with the spicy red fucking prints. Come on, guys, $25 for Blu-ray. But who said that? Mm-hmm. Um Dark Force. <laughs> uh, no, the psychopath's really good. Patrick White is a policeman. Uh, it sort of got. What was that Michael Powell movie? Peeping Tom. Oh yeah. It's it sort of got hints of that. I, I I taped this off for TV, and then I I found it on VHS and I copied that way back in the day. And God knows what happened to my copy. Really good thriller about this handsome, thin. Slightly creepy guy, who is a mama's boy, who likes ladies. Okay, so he visits ladies of the night, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and but also has enough uh, thing for nice girls, you know, real nice girls. And but he can't make the thing between the two. And he's into dolls. His mom's a doll collector. Not like my mother. It's not me. Uh, (laughs) So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I did not want somebody like writing. Hey, by the way, I uh, saw so your creepy doll
0: collection. <laughs> yeah, my
1: mother's a collector of creepy dolls. Yeah, I can see it tomorrow. I'm like,
0: she's like, help me sell my creepy dolls. Like nobody wants these. Um, you don't take cameras with like the thing pops out and it's a knife blade, right? <laughs> you know. The, the you know she's Tom's like, letter. this
1: one talks. I'm like, <laughs> like, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> So, uh, The Psychopath's a really good movie. It's a lesser... I'm talking to and I don't like you. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. We, we were there a couple of weeks ago, and she goes, this doll walks. What do I have to do? Hold it tan.
2: It's not
1: It's not moving. No, squeeze it harder. No, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> fucking stabs
0: me. Put a drop pill, of like. your blood on it.
1: <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> uh, no, it's my doll. Don't get blood on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, uh Whatever. Uh, no, it's a, it's a, but no, folks, seriously, it's a creepy film. Um, you might find it on eBay-ish for those who want to drop a few bucks. There's a lot of people out there now, like I'm a fucking bootlegger.com, but they're selling stuff on bootleg, you know, on eBay. Yeah. Or, you know, slimy bastard. (laughs) No, really, because, folks, you know, if you go on eBay, you're looking for stuff that's actually not released on DVD or Blu-ray. You're taking a chance on
0: quality.
1: So please look at people's
0: reviews. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And check the labels you know if you can.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's our public service announcement for the day. But so this this movie might be
0: out there. It's really good, it's creepy, I recommend it. So next up is the Deadly Bees. Sort of a mixed one, but I always enjoyed it for what it is. Another Freddie Francis job. So, uh, they move from the skull to the deadly bees, a swinging 60s knock on Sherlock Holmes and his bee farms, or is that the swarm, UK countryside style? The somewhat annoying hammer starlet Susanna Lee and a hideous Doris Day bob and flip is a dusty <laughs> Springfield tight pop singer, which, by the way, gives Ron Woods' old band The Birds a few minutes of screen time to start their stuff. Uh, she cracks up and gets sent off to recuperate with a grumpy old beekeeper and his wife out in the sticks. Now, I've heard of a change as good as a rasp, but <laughs> Who sent her there? Anyway, there's a question of who's killing off folks with a mutant strain of killer bees. You know, is it the guy she's staying with? Or is it the kindly neighbor, Frank Finley, who's in bed old man makeup? In the end, her pushiness and snooping and trying to get away from the miserable old fart she's staying with, let's just get to the bottom of the mystery. Other Hammer Vets like Katie Wilde and Michael Ripper show up along the way, and, you know, it's all pretty good fun. It's not a great film own, but it's certainly enjoyable for its type, especially if you're into that sort of Dracula, AD 72, sort of, and 60s, the sorcerers kind of vibe. I never,
1: never really liked this. Uh, for some reason, it, it was a CBS TV I think it was 1130 back in the days, what, what are we talking, late 70s, early 80s, CBS TV used to show all kinds of yep. shit, 100%. and they used to show this quite often. I'm like, Okay, it's on again. And I, I never really liked it. I, I, I don't know. I think it was just something they
0: dropped the ball on. It didn't work for me. So, uh, next up, we get another one of these portmanteau films: uh, Torture Garden. Mm, second and w- second and worst of the cheap portmanteau films hey, that I hey. guess <laughs> became known for. This one features the penguin himself, Burgess Meredith, as a carnival barker who may actually be Satan? <laughs> <laughs> first comes a terrible predecessor to Sabotsky's later and far more successful The Uncanny, where some doofy guy kills a rich uncle, but winds up flipping out in fear of a cute tortie cat. The horrors, I guess they couldn't handle tortitude. There's a cheap take on the Stepford Wives, minus any social commentary, a proto-Christine where the jealous and animate object is a fucking piano, and the only memorable episode where Jack Palance, or Palance, if you will, kills Peter Cushing over a Poe collectible, which turns out to be the mummified but still living Poe himself. The film establishes the amicus formula with a lot of name actors, generally but not exclusively the UK variety, show up in short boring horror comic style, which were lately directly cribbed from horror comics segments, of which each movie sports exactly one that's memorable and the rest are kind of shit, so uh, (laughs) your take, since you obviously have a very different take on this one I I guess you didn't like it (laughs) (laughs) I liked the last one with Paul, that was not bad (laughs) (laughs) damn boy (laughs)
1: in my belief, it's not as all bad as he says. Yeah, I mean, you know, these anthology films are really hit and miss. We're going to get into a bunch of really interesting ones coming up soon. He's a um, bum. You can take yeah. him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think it, it's. This is one of those movies that's almost redeemable by the last 15, 20 minutes, yes. which is the poem, which we both like. It's. It, I mean, as far as we know, they were all directed by Freddie Francis Agren. Wow. Uh, who was also a cinematographer, and if I believe he finally won his Oscar for The Elephant Man. Oh, no, really? Okay. I believe so yeah i yeah uh, <laughs> killer kill <a> piano
2: uh,
1: <laughs> these are all weird episodes uh creepy the the there's another one that's quite unusual uh beverly adams and who was that field uh, he went overseas the american actor uh i can't remember his name he was in uh Remember one of those space adventure movies they did later on, about a year or two later that you really hated this? well. Everybody hates those, but <laughs> um, Yeah, remember they came from Beyond Space, I think, isn't that? And he plays the American actor and Beverly Adams Anyway, that was that was an unusual episode. It was like an aging star that never ages. And it turns out they're androids or cyborgs or whatever. And I thought that was an unusual episode, but the one with Palance and Cushing as Poe, you know, the, you, you. I think it really stood out. I think it would have been a really good short film. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I agree mm-hmm. on that. Uh, and, and Palance is at the top of his game. They took the uh, rush away from him. And so, if everybody remembers Rush, <laughs> 78, 82, you know, when he held it, wow, okay, what do we do now? Um, <laughs> so, anyway, uh, Palance, or Palance, he kept changing his one, uh, yeah. And Cushing are like really knocking the boards with this one. It's yes. like two poke collectors. Of course, Jack Pelman is excitable poke collector. <laughs> and Cushing is like. One arm push ups. <laughs> yeah, Cush, Cushing, Cushing, Cushing is very reserved, calm, but irritable poke collector. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, it's funny. It's interesting to see these two styles at work. Yeah, one one guy has like guess, the legendary whatever polo, and the other guy's looking for it and it's a really good short and it's it's a standout and actually it's the one thing I think that redeems us. Unfortunately the surrounding and the wrap up of Burgess I don't mind as much as you do.
0: Uh funny there was one where they scared of a torty cat. I mean, I just want to pet the damn thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I I don't hate it as much as you do,
1: but I think the last episode, which we both kind of like, liked, oh, yeah. was
0: yeah. yeah, I agree with that. Uh, so, again, another one I never saw, Danger Route, a spy film, with mm. Richard Johnson in it. Uh, oh, yeah, a
1: lot of people like that. I've seen it. Uh, <laughs> Carol Lindley, before she had, like, so many faceless, she doesn't look human anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I saw it at convention a few years ago, and I was like, "What oh, the fuck?" Pulling a chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, um, Richard Johnson's in it, and Richard—it's not the Richard Johnson from the Bulldog Drummond pictures, which are a lot of fun. Now this is the Richard Johnson more subdued, being kind of prickly, kind of like Stanley Baker and in innocent bystanders, kind of like really
0: hardcore, rigid. Spy dude. So is this the Richard Johnson that was in like Zombie and The Haunting and Yes, uh, the same guy. Yeah, I met him. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. Must be born. (laughs) Yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. And and
1: this movie is like very stoic, spy dude versus aging femme fatale, and it 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 was okay. It has a lot of its fans. I thought it was an alright movie. Again,
0: nothing to write home about so uh, next up come two sci-fi films I wasn't able to re-review them because they're buried in my collection somewhere obviously they are buried, it says something they were really rather bad I'd seen them recently on I think Network put them out on cheapy DVDs for the UK audiences one is Freddie Francis, but they came from Beyond Space the other one's some guy named Montgomery Tully basically, well the one's got Michael Gow in it, the other one's got Charlie Hartree from the Carry On films in it that should say something right there and Simon Oates from uh, Doomwatch Basically, they were so extremely boring. I remember one had like uh, almost cardboard cutout robots, like you would like when you were a kid in the sixties and seventies and eighties, when your parents would make like, oh, here's a cardboard box that we got from pre Amazon or whatever. We're gonna cut holes in it, and you can be inside that, and then we'll paint your head uh, silver or something, or give you a tin foil hat, and you're a robot now. It was like that kind of level, very very. Dull and boring, is all I remember. And I think they came from beyond space, may have been slightly better, because the Terranons, I thought, they had to solve something about, like, toys. There was, like, a big, uh, or something on the floor, almost like the um the thing where you put your, like, the square block into the square hole and the, the star block into the star hole. One of those kind of <laughs> things. It was that bad. And the other one that came from beyond space was just boring as shit with these aliens threatening to take over a military base and then they go on this lying saucer and michael gals on there and lectures them for like 40 minutes just yammering oh, oh, on oh, oh, and on wait, and
1: on. Wait, wait wait a minute that's a movie where they talk about it they talk about things they don't do so anything this, they just talk yeah you know? right, right there has to be no altercation between races we'll talk about it <laughs> exactly exactly that's
0: what i remembered so anything you want to say about them no,
1: no, no, it's, it's fine. These, these were two, Also, two late-night American TV mainstays, I guess. Uh, if you were up really fucking late, you couldn't sleep, and, like, whatever. You smoked too much pot, you couldn't go to <laughs> sleep. We did too much blow. You know what I think? When you, go in the, you look in the mirror, your eyes are really, your pupils are really big, like, our or smoked too, too much cocaine. It's three days later. I can't,
0: yeah, I can't <laughs> sleep. Uh, What's on TV? Oh, I watch this. Okay, so... uh, Yeah, you know when you're up and you see the fat guy that yells at you in the commercials? What are you doing up at night? Don't you have a job? A family? What's wrong with you? Talk to the
1: guys I hung out with tonight.
0: So,
1: so, so, yeah, yeah, these
2: are two
1: movies that were on a lot on late night TV back in the day, and um, my experience is pretty
0: close to yours. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And nobody ever talks good about them. They're always kind of a joke. And coastally, whether you're talking about, uh, well, it's not coastally, but across the pond, if you will. The U.K. makes fun of them. The states make fun of them. Anybody else, who knows? I, don't, I can't imagine uh, they'd have a big audience in Iceland or something. <laughs> but a touch of because, love. Because, because. And The Mind of Mr. Soames. I vaguely remember The Mind of Mr. Soames from TV airings. Again, boring. Terrence Stamps in that one. And Robert Vaughn from uh, The Man from U.N.C.L.E. But, you know, I don't really remember anything about it. It was a bad sci-fi thing. you have anything you want to say on either of those before we move on? Uh, The
1: Mind of Mr. Soames I had seen on cable years and years ago. Yeah. And it was very... Rigid, uh, uh, kind of one of those movies, like, we're going to take everything very seriously. Uh, it was done much better, but not too much later. Christopher Walken movie, a uh, similar theme, and we can't remember the name of that. Might have been a British film. Uh, also about a, a guy who had something done to his brain, and, you know, whatever. Yeah, my name is Mr. Soames. After The Man from Uncle, you Favorite television show of ever. <laughs> Robert Vaughn did a lot of, a lot of movies where he played this like really, kind of stoic. There's that word again, stoic evil prick fucking bastard titan. Mm-hmm. And whether it was a scientist or an agent or just like a uh, for bullet, it was a politician. Yeah. You know, bullet was Stephen Queen. He just played these kind of parts, where it's like the man did not even go out of his wheelhouse as an actor. Yeah. And it actually probably gave a bad impression of what he actually was able to do as an actor, but I don't know, for whatever reason. And this is another one of those movies. And, you know, Terrence Stamp is in this early, young, handsome Terrence Stamp. Um, yeah, it's a weird kind of mindfuck movie, but would would I recommend it to anyone? No, because there's a lot of stuff that ilk I could recommend, and I probably would.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, next up they go back to the mm-hmm. Portmanteau films. Uh, it's the well now the third uh, MX Portmanteau. It's a huge improvement, the house that dripped blood. Yeah. Uh this time the gimmick is a house for sale where all the tenants come to a gruesome end. Denim Elliott is a paperback horror writer whose killer character comes to life, taking out everyone he comes in contact with and leaving him as the mad suspect. Cushing and his fat pal run across a wax museum where a mutual ex appears to be immortalized. Everyone, including the crazy proprietor, winds up dead. Scary old Nairie Dawn Porter, the Protectors, who I know you liked, uh, in her first Amicus role, is an old busybody who gets way too much up in the affairs of Christopher Lee and his daughter. Why won't he let her have a doll? Gee, wouldn't have anything to do with voodoo, right? Whatever. The one memorable story story here is strangely it's a comic relief one too my doctor john pertwee is pretty much himself as an irascible perfectionist of an actor who gets inveigled by his sexy co-star ingrid pitt into buying an old vampire cape that's more than it seems if you don't like pertwee or you don't enjoy ogling pitt which i'm sorry for you if that's true there's not a lot to like in this one as a whole but otherwise this episode is the one that saves it once again so
1: oh very very good film uh, anthology whatever Everyone should have this in the collection. It's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, the uh, It's funny. This is so popular that this was re-released and re-released at Infinitum for years and years into the mid-70s in American theaters. I remember I went to see in Brooklyn, uh, New York, uh, of all places, and Hey, uh, I went to see some black exploitation movie In a sketchy neighborhood <laughs> You know it was like kill all the white boys You know some <laughs> shit like that And And the, the second feature was like House of Your Blood I'm like really okay you know, so I, I watched kill all the white boys And I slunk down in my seat Like kill all the fucker. But House of Your Blood came on again I was like okay I haven't seen this in a long
0: time so i watch it again Yeah, but <laughs> I see some strange shit man did it remind you of that thing, of, I remember the Medveds, had written a book, one of those golden turkeys or some shit, and they had this hilarious experience they recount going to a grindhouse theater somewhere in one of these dicey neighborhoods, and they got to see Scream Blackula Scream, among other things, and it was like the last one going at like four in the morning, with bums, the kind of exploitation crowd you could describe, hookers, trannies, you well, know, whatever. Okay, so I'm going to burst your bubble.
1: The, the real story about the Mad Men's is they were two nerdy guys I never went to the theaters. They were, much as what I did for Psychotronic Video, it's coming out right now, folks. There were guys that wrote for them okay. that actually experienced stuff and they paid them. And so when they did their book, they did it under their byline. <laughs> so, yeah. I, and as far as I know, to this day, the Mad Feds actually didn't even see a lot of these movies. Wow, that is
0: unbelievable. No, it's not.
1: That. It's believable. It's believable. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you something else, because you probably don't want us in our show. You know, Psychotronic, uh, Michael, what's his name? Well, I worked for him, and he used to give me a lot of work to do for him. He was like, can you find out quotes and credits for so-and-so? And I was like, wow, that's a lot of work, man. You know, and he paid me. He paid me. And then, like, six months later, we'll see. An interview, Joe Simon interviews uh, Estella Blanca. I'm like, wow, nice credits, nice quotes. <laughs> uh, I think they're from the the Xeroxes I sent them. I love people like that. Well, anyway. So. But, 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 no, what I'm trying to say is, and, you know, look, you know, this is the way people work. I never work like that. If I didn't speak
0: to you, I can't say I talked to you. It yeah, work that exactly but it's called existential authenticity people learn it live it like what I like, that. I like <laughs> that oh but anyway I digress there and so this is a
1: really good movie it's not a great film I think we tend no. to get stronger but also weaker as we go on but um there, it's got so much airy stuff going on the uh the fat guy you <laughs> that was actually Josh ackland who was in uh, Lethal Weapon Two? Mel Gibson. Okay. Uh, Waxworks is really good episode. I thought, you know, it's like one of Peter Cushion's like starry moments. He's this guy who had this thing for this woman, and he was just so enamored of her. And like he goes to a wax museum in like a small podunk town village in England. Uh, it looks like her, and like the guy knows, like it looks like her, doesn't it? And he keeps going back and then there's another gentleman who shows up who was his rival for this woman
0: you he know he's a big fat guy
1: <laughs> well so he was a rival for this woman and y'all you know, he's like you know I know something's off I don't think you should go back there anymore and he goes back there he finds the other guy has been going back. it's very weird and it says a lot for Longy I thought I thought I thought they did very well with that episode and the cloak, John Pertwee, your mm-hmm. doctor, is very cute. Yeah, you know, he's a self-involved actor he was,
0: you know, making Hammer-type movies. and He was kind of playing it really close to the bone there, being this obnoxious, irascible, you know, mm-hmm. self-involved performer that's difficult to work with because all accounts say that's exactly who he was. But, you know, I love him, so. Yeah, yeah, and, and Ingrid Pitt in the ultimate push-up bra. Yes. So I was like, wow. Wow. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, she was really luscious there. <laughs> luscious, luscious. Yeah, and, you know, And, and one of the other really good ones in this, uh, you mentioned Nairie Down Porter, is the uh, Christopher Lee, yeah, he's the father of this creepy little fucking girl, and I'm sorry, folks, if you have a creepy little girl, fucking kill her. It's <laughs> you know, all a favor. Uh, you know, if, you get, if she gets to be five or six years old, burn your house down, say so you don't know what happened, so you're not blamed for it. But we don't want a creepy fucking exorcist child walking around in the earth. We already have Donald Trump and his creepy kids. So, <laughs> we don't need another creepy kid. So, this is a really good movie. Christopher Lee realized... Uh, sorry, story. Christopher Lee realized he has a creepy daughter. So, he hires Chloe Franks, who's been another other things. And he hires the nanny, who's like this mannered woman who learns that he's got a creepy fucking daughter. And I like the way how this Turned out because I don't want to spoil things, but it's like, okay, I'm going to deal with this,
0: you know, kind of thing. And yeah, it's a good film. It's fun. If she wasn't such a damn busybody, everything would have been fine, <laughs> which is kind of true in life. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. Uh, so, next up Scream and Scream Again, which is oh. a great hassle job. Here's one I really never liked. This rather oh. fey gentleman is jogging somewhat lackadaisically. you got to say this to believe it. Wow, I'm this jogging. Uh, before he passes out, he wakes up in a hospital missing a leg for no apparent reason. Okay, what does that have to do with the rest of the film? Not much. Uh, there's this side story about some Nazi kind of group and spies and another one about this hippie going around the bad London clubs, which is kind of an excuse to blow a hell of a lot of running time on lousy dancing and some half-assed Todd Rundgren type doing a sub-Motown ditty and picking up Dolly Birds, who he then kills and drains of blood. Ooh, is he a vampire? No, but this guy and the cops chasing after him take the bulk of the movie up. Just like with Tigon's Curse of the Crimson Altar, which we discussed during our Barber Steel show, This is another Starfucker project, with Christopher Lee cameoing as an MI6 man, Peter Cushing cameoing as one of the Nazis, Vincent Price as the doctor-come-shrink that the cops go to for explanation of the hippies' crimes, though he actually turns out to be the evil genius behind a silly, I guess you could say Manchurian-candidate-style conspiracy relating to eugenics. You never see any of them on screen at the same time. It's confusing, it's fairly dull, and it always felt pointless, despite certain quarters praising it to high heaven. So, your take.
1: This movie always creeped me out.
0: Whoa.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to have the poster in my, the American poster in my, my bedroom. Oh, weird. Mm-hmm. And uh, it always creeped me out. I, I I never saw it in the theater. I saw it on late night TV. And then finally saw it, uh, I had a British pal tape uh, off the pre-record. I was like, oh, my God, it's so weird. It's just weird as I remembered it, and then blah, 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 blah. Uh, there was a DVD a few years ago from Warner Archive, and it's just so weird. It, yeah, it's the first movie that Lee, Cushing, and Price are building. Um, I don't think all three have scenes together, but, yeah, it's weird because I I. it's got cool music. You shouldn't like the music. It's got cool music. It's got like that. Well, not kind the of... song
0: that that guy was doing in the club. I'll say that. But yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it's got this kind of jaunty kind of, uh, jaunty kind of prefaces, Stonesish kind of. I'm a pop idol kind of stuff going on. <laughs> um, that's pretty good, right? Um, but you know what was? I always creeped me out was that. So, the guy's jogging, he wakes up minus a limb, and then we go into the story, uh, which makes no fucking sense. It was almost like, did you ever think this? It was very similar to, like, Mission Impossible episodes, you know, when he goes yeah. to weird foreign countries, and it's like, Alex, uh, what's it Alex, Alfred Ryder mm-hmm. or, or uh, 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 some other very versatile character actor playing a Eastern European diplomat or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, I think Alfred Ryder, because he's really good at that, in, like, Yugoslavia, <laughs> or
2: Yugoslavia, they all, like,
1: Jim, you and your mission have 42 minutes to actually uh, go in the air and do nothing and leave a barber getting banged with some foreign diplomat. <laughs> You know, something like that.
0: You and know, I'll just jump in for a second there. When we, we watched a lot of Mission Impossible ourselves, we kind of struggled our way through, skipping around towards the end, because once you get into Larry Nemo it really goes downhill. But the one thing I always ask is, what if it would ever happen, you know, Jim, if this is your mission, if you choose to accept it, if Jim said, "Nah, eh, fuck this, I'm going to do something else. Yeah, yeah. Jim would go, sounds really fucking terrifying and scary. No, I'm not going to
1: do it.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> It's, it's like, we're not coming back from this. No way, we're fucking face It's like Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, like, uh, Tom, you have to, no, Ethan, you have to jump out of a plane without a parachute. Probably you might die. You're gonna meet a hot British chick,
0: but should be back in the sequel kicking your ass. No, I'll pass. Yeah, okay. And how would they know Because they're leaving this message somewhere It's not like he's going to get back to him and say Nah, screw you, get somebody else to do the job Right, know. how
1: would they know <laughs> <laughs> like, I see Angela Bassett and the, the one Like, well, he's discommunicated from the church Or whatever I, You
0: know, come on you know, excommunicated. No. <laughs> Anyway, uh, Screaming Scream Again Has always creeped me out uh, Didn't it feel like a Godfrey Holt film though Because it was almost like the stories had nothing to do with each other Even though yeah, some of them yeah, were related Yeah, yeah. There's been a lot
1: written about this um, But you know what it's, 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 For me it's just it's So weird all this other Odd stuff Kind of like however They edited together like a Really poor Jack Lane commercial <laughs> It's just uh, It kind of worked to just Odd weird thing and, and to this day for me It's like oh yeah I have that in my collection I will watch it one day again I hmm. <laughs> you know, never so, do. <laughs> just, yeah, it's just too weird. It's too weird. And and I I don't think we'll ever know of course the big cause celebre of this whole thing is when it was released in this country they couldn't get the rights of the original music, so they had some uh dude, whatever his name was, who was like AIP's guy for a while to re record like music I could do on my keyboard. Yeah. Um as a soundtrack, and then the big thing was it's uncut, because we don't have the original score, and that was like the big thing with this picture, but it's a really, I mean, to me, it's a really weird fucking movie, and we may never know what really happened with this picture, because I never see much written about it, and nobody ever seems to want to write, or dig in. <laughs> Everybody dissociated <laughs> stuff from <in> the picture. <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. I think it's,
0: it might be something for not by us, but by others further digging. Next is... So next is another one that's in my collection, and I don't know why, which is I A fellow named Stephen Weeks, who directed this thing. It's, again, I, I didn't want to pull it out. I have it. I know where it is. I'm just like, that movie sucked. I'm like, gonna right, look at that again. <laughs> so maybe I was just give it away. Well, Basically, <coughs> it's a bad take on Jekyll and Hyde with Chris Rooley and Peter Cushing and Mike Ravens, which is probably the reason I picked it up in the first place. And of all people, Michael Desbarres shows up in this damn thing. What? Uh... Ian McCulloch, not the guy from Echo and the Men, but still, you'll know him if you know British film. Richard Herndahl, who showed up in some Doctor Who's. I mean, he, this is actually, he was one of the replacements, the fake replacements for uh, William Hartnell during one of those, maybe the Five Doctors, one of those anniversary episodes because Hartnell was dead. Really, really bad film and made worse by the fact that I think it came out on retro media, so the print is like, dog shit found the bottom of a dumpster. So.
1: Well, this is one of those movies that also came out, speaking of retro media, uh, I think it was uh, released theatrically in the U.S. through Metro Media, which was a very, very short-lived U.S. distributor uh, who didn't use Technicolor. Uh, a lot of people used some technicolor, technicolor back in the days, and their prints always seemed to kind of look drab and kind mm-hmm. of ugly. Scars of Dracula, that gives you a good idea, folks. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you want to know what I'm talking about. I mean, Scars of Dracula is a much more popular title. And if you've seen that, you know what I'm my meaning about this. Yeah, you know, the one big turnoff right away is they, they kill some mice live on screen for this. And I was like, why? And it's early. And it always stayed in the prints for this, even the TV prints. I was shocked. I saw no reason. Supposedly, Christopher Lee was really interested in the role. Which he gives a decent performance. And, and for that matter, I, I guess you would say Cushing. But Stephen Weeks was one of these, uh, at this time period, he was a writer and a uh, kind of like the British version of the Warholian crowd. Mm-hmm. And so he did that movie with Marion Faithful Ghost Story. You remember that? Yeah, it's another very slow kind of trying to be more important than it is kind of movie. Right. I, I never felt he was a great filmmaker. He might have had potential, but I really disliked
0: this film when I saw it, and I always did. So, yeah, yeah thumbs down. <laughs> so, uh, next up is what became of Jack and Jill, which i really like to see on DVD because it's the final big-screen appearance of Vanessa Howard, uh, and I always kind of like Vanessa Howard. She looks like an ex of mine. Uh, but it's <laughs> another story. Uh, you know, she was in things like um, Mumsy Daddy, or how they call that one. I think they released it over here as Mumsy. Mumsy. Yeah. Uh, girly, that was it. Thank you. She was in a couple of films around this time period. She's kind of like a somewhat less inclined to take all her clothes off and get funky with you, Linda Hayden. You know, very similar look, very similar type. Uh, But, you know, again, I have not seen the damn thing because they didn't bother releasing it over here. And then we go into Asylum. So is there anything you want to say about that one before we go there?
1: Vanessa Howard had great nipples. (laughs) 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 (coughs) Well, I'm sorry, folks. It's true. It's like
0: you're a fan of that kind of thing. Like when she, yeah. So, next film. (laughs) So, so (laughs) next we go to Asylum. Uh, Robert Powell of Doomwatch and uh, Peeping Tom, you mentioned earlier, is looking for a job with crusty old Patrick McGee of Hammer's Demons of the Mind and Fulci's Black Cat. And yes, folks, we did do shows on both Hammer and Fulci. There's a fun twist at the end that sort of parallels American government right now because the inmates have taken over the asylum. I believe these stories hail from Robert Block, who Hitchcock also drew from regularly, as did the Boris Karloff U.S. version of Thriller. Personally, I prefer the U.K. one from Avengers scribe Brian Clemens, but that's an aside. Which also means that you know how tired these sort of 1950s vintage twist-in-the-tail efforts have already become by 1972. The sort of cute Barbara Parkins chops up her boyfriend's wife, but the frozen body parts come after. It just looks kind of silly. Peter Cushing requests a suit made out of some mystery fabric that looks like, kind of Gremlins in reverse. It can only be sewn after midnight. If you're afraid of autons and mannequins, this one may work for you. Otherwise, it's boring. Charlotte Rampling. Yes, Anne Rice's favorite actress and The Night Porter Starlet shows up alongside Rod Stewart, Beau and Bond Girl, Britt Eckland uh, Anybody who knows Tonight's the Night, you hear that cooing in French in the middle when he's supposed to be making love to her. That's her who rather sexually showed us how to do in The Wicker Man, by the way, as a former mental patient and her crazy friend, who may or may not exist, otherwise nothing much happens. Herbert Lom pulls a coffin Joe and makes weird little robots with miniature rubber versions of his own head to ostensibly menace people, but they look so much like a Jerry Anderson super marionation job atop Robbie the Robot. It's just kind of hilarious instead of scary. The film has atmosphere, but, eh. yeah, Asylum is... uh Asylum is one
1: of those amicus films that I think, for me, I think uh, I guess sum it up as creepy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, they're creepy. Um, Horrific, no, but definitely creepy. And, you know, you got a great cast of people like Imagine Cushing, Brad Eklund, Robert Powell, Barry Morris, uh, Herbert Lom. I don't think we ever covered Space 1999, speaking yeah. of Morris. No. Yeah something to consider and a lot of these stories do remind the hit and miss of the previous amicus uh, anthology mm-hmm. but but this one i do have to say that is the creepiness is amplified so is there any one episode better than the other i say they're all all about on par all about equal it's not I don't think it's horrible. I don't think it's terrible. I, I think it's if you've not seen Asylum, folks, by all means, it's it's worth a shot. It's worth reviewing. Some people
0: might like it then both you and I, but I think the best is yet to come. Yeah. And again, like you said, it's got atmosphere, so that's kind of the creepiness you're talking about, I think. But eh, does yes. it work? Eh. Depends. What mood you're in, I guess. So next up is Tales from the Crypt. Here's Mm. one of the two where they drive right into the E C comics thing. This time it's folks wandering through the catacombs, they meet an old creep who reminds them of why they're there, no points if you guess what the quote twist ending is, duh. But the best one here, and the only one anyone remembers really, is the proto Christmas Slasher with the still young hot and slutty Joan Collins before she became the obnoxious 80's diva everyone remembers, When she was just kind of selling herself for a part everywhere. It's tense enough and better than most holiday slashers that followed much later in its wake. The other ones are pretty boring. I mean, Ian Hendry gets in a crash with his hot mistress, goes home and freaks the family out because he's been dead for a few years. That's proven when he sees himself in the mirror. Fairly fruity father-son team get pissed off at friend to all children, Peter Cushing. So they make him out to be a child molester. Ooh, how awkward. Take his dogs away from him and basically ruin his life until he kills himself. In the end, he comes back as a zombie to take revenge. Yeah, whatever. There's a cheap, boring take on the monkey's paw. If you want to see that story done right, try Death Dream. The gross one about some cheaper. Republican type who takes over a home for the blind, cuts all their social services and funding so they get rationed on food and heat, while he gets the old golden parachute because, you know, shit floats, oh, I'm sorry, cream rises to the top, and we have to reward the brightest and the best. <clears throat> Hello, America, wake the fuck up already. Uh, so, it's a cheap revenge tale, of course, so they set up a trap where he gets chased by his favorite dog, who they starve into craziness, and in a tight maze full of razor blades in the dark. Yeah, the feel-good picture of the year. It's another one based on those stupid EC horror comics everyone seems to love so much, so the expect i really 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 hate this one the collins episode aside so go ahead Oh, i thought <laughs> <laughs> you liked this one wow no, thanks nope. just the, 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 the christmas one is, is actually pretty good but at the rest of it oof.
1: well well i like this one I <laughs> the movies that was re-released at infinitum um uh, Uh, If I don't know if anybody's in the tri-state area of New York, there was a theater in Brooklyn called the Sanders Park Slope. It's long gone now. Uh, It's now a, uh, I don't know what it is, it's something. They used to pull a new picture out, and whatever its theme was, you would see an older picture. It was either a hammer or amicus or something like that. And here it is, 1974. And I'm a kid. I'm a kid, and I go there, and I'm like, I'm seeing. Um, what am I seeing? Because it was a funky neighbor at the time. Let's say the Black Six, the biker movie, and Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's always a pleasure to see something you might have seen on TV cut the sh- cut the ribbons, and you're in a theater watching the whole fucking thing, and like, yeah, it's great, you know? because it's different. You know, and, and I like this it's funny, all through the house of Joan Collins episode mm-hmm. uh, which is the one you like the best and probably, yes, I agree, the most well-remembered one it's creepy to this day, I'm sure I I shared a gif of two or three or a billion over the years um, but I also like Reflection of Death Ian Hendry as, as the guy who like gets into a fucked up car wreck and walks for we don't know how long was it eternity and shows up at his house he's a mummified fucked up wreck from his car which you can imagine like say you really like somebody and like you want to take go home but she cheated on you but you don't know that so you're like walking eternity you died in a car wreck you're all fucked up but nobody sees that because you're in that world. And then you go home, and, like, she's, what, her new guy. It's, like, some young guy she's banging. And you walk in the house, and your flesh is dropping off, like, a what? <laughs> i the an act. What? Kind of thing?
0: But, see, your audio description of it is better than the story.
1: <laughs> I know. She writes this down. We could be rich. Uh, and the thing with Cushing, the thing with Cushing is always bittersweet to me. You don't like that. I, I like that, because, like, I could see some rich... Trumpian, like, what's Trump's son, that fucking bastard? What's his name?
0: Oh, God, Eric or uh, Donald Jr. And then you get that little kid, Baron.
1: Or, or evil fuck, Jr., wherever his name is. Yeah. And, and, and I can see them taking taking homes away from maybe not poor people, but from people who have lived all their lives yep. to get their little house. And I can see them, we want to build a our, our big place here. You know, you no longer own this. Yep. And, like, Arthur Grimsdyke is like, I do not want to sell to you I'm 79 years old. Like, we're going to say you're a child blaster and you, you sub crucifix up nuns' twats and shit like that. And then Arthur Grimsdyke dies, a lonely, sad, heartbroken old man. But then these guys, they're like, they want to buy his fucking house, you know? Because they want to build there, and the author comes back for vengeance. That's the way I look at this movie. So in the Trump age, yeah, I kind of like it even more.
0: Well, oh, you got that, and you got Blind Alleys, which are the same thing. They're both about these kind of Republican shits. You know, well, screen, yeah, well, up. Blind Alleys is
1: very weird. You know, it's that's one, you know, you wouldn't think would creep you out as much, but, yeah, you got this, here we go, I'm going to use the word again. No, please, evil fuck. You know, you got this guy <laughs> who's pretty much running his home. But well, the you know, it's like a home you would sell your mom or dad to, you know, like they're getting up there and yep. what do they call these places? Uh, uh,
0: retirement homes, assisted living, you know, assisted living, living. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, like you think they're okay
1: and this guy's like, I'm gonna barely give you enough to eat you know, it's Patrick McGee, the from a clockwork orange, a real prick bastard who gets his comeuppance yep. and then gets his vengeance. So that's another story. So, yeah, you know, Patrick McGee. Yeah, you know, he's one of the residents and, and he's you know, he's like, uh, Nigel Patrick, who's a good looking man prior to this movie. I don't know what happened, he drank too much. Uh, <laughs> he yeah, you know, he's running this home for the blind and you know, they're all colonels, they're all I think primarily they're all uh, war guys, war oh, right, VA, Whatever. Yeah, VA, yeah. And and you know, he's just treating them like shit. And these guys, you know what? <laughs> We're gonna shut the lights. Line the wall with razors and put a fucking uh Starb his dog. Starve attack dog at the end. Yes. And then we're gonna shut the lights.
0: <laughs> it's a sick I, revenge thing. I mean, I understand what they were trying to do, but it was just like that's yeah, really gruesome it's depressing. I said the feel good movie of the year, like ugh. <laughs> Well, no. The film over
1: the years, Trump dies in a fucking car wreck, but that's well, not the to thing. So, so with uh, Pence and his fucking family. So, woo. Hello. Uh, hello.
0: But. Uh, <laughs> Our next horror movie is <laughs> is to continue this EC thing. Yet another one from EC, the Vault of Horror. Uh, this one's slightly better than its predecessor, but not by much. Sadly, it was probably the most memorable episode. Is weirdly edited in the DVD version. As a kid, I remember that last scene with the spigot of blood stuck in the guy's neck was kind of creepy, right? These it on the TV. Yeah. Here, it's a huge chop at it in the film with a two-second still frame insert, which they actually blacked out this section on it, so you can't see the spigot terrible, terrible misfire. Thanks so much, MGM, you fucks. Anyway, (laughs) this time, all the victims are in an elevator, which goes down to guess where in the end. In the meantime, they all share their stories, the others which include friggin' Terry Thomas as a neat freak whose messy wife is very neat about organizing all his body parts. One with, of all people, Dawn Adams and Kurt Juergens as magicians looking for a new trick. He finds a girl who does the Indian rope trick, Batman style. (laughs) Remember that episode with Lord Fogg? Uh, They kill her for the trick rope, which kills them in turn. There's a dull and confused using one about Double Cross's premature burial and a Birkin hair pair who wound up killing the guy. And one with the wall people, Tom Baker, the uh, what most people consider the quintessential Doctor Who, as a painter who uses voodoo to get back at double-dealing art dealers and critics, but winds up screwed by a Dorian Gray-like self-portrait. You know, again, it's one of these things, I'm not big in the Portmanteau films. There are moments that are passable, uh, but whatever. Uh... <laughs> oh, my God. Echo, uh, Lou.
1: Well, it's... Roy Ward Baker directed this one. Who had a hit and miss career with his Hammer yes movies.
0: He did a lot and, of the later um, ones.
1: Yes, the late ones. And I'm not quite sure. This is pointing toward a sort of downward turn with these Amicus pictures. You know, mm-hmm. it's. I mean, you know, the eerie comics, the creepy comics, and and the ilk. I collected them. I'm sure you, you collected them or read them. And, I and read them, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're like really freaking. Some of them so odd, so weird. Some of I know when I was a kid. I'm talking late teens, so not you know not like that long ago. I was like, I would buy them like, oh man, this is like freaking out. yeah. It's like <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And you know, and folks, if you if you creepy in the area, there are some things that will freak you out and. I think in a way that was the whole thought behind this it's like let's make an anthology film with this ambiance but they couldn't go so far or as far yeah I think it's a creep show without the comedy well maybe I think the Daniel Massey thing yeah when it was released in here it ended with that
0: freeze frame I'm like huh and Bailey inserted too. I'm like, what the hell? And then they had the cutout in the middle of the frame. I mean, what, what are you doing? It was barely inserted. It wasn't until
1: we saw the uncut version it really was like six seconds more. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> that works a lot better. Uh, I know. I know. Uh. The Terry Thomas episode uh, with the trophy wife thing, you know, I think, yeah, I'm very easy on Terry these days, uh, knowing that he died a very terrible death, but... Uh, I had no idea. Yeah, uh, no, Terry Thomas died of Parkinson's. Uh, Ooh, that lasted a very long time. He nice. And actually, if you Google, he had it for 10 years, and people tried to raise money. The BBC even ran little things on their shows to try to help raise money for Terry Thomas. But if you ask me... He was a really well-known, famed actor. You mean somebody over in the U.K. couldn't
0: say, here's the 20,000 pounds, we're going to help you, Terry? Come on. Who was the guy that was in all the Astaire films? He reminds me of him. You know, the sidekick, Butler, You like three names. Yeah, 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 yeah. Same idea, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's like, you know, I mean, British TV is running things with Terry shaking and being to by a nanny. This is actually exists. I saw this. It was heartbreaking. And they're trying to raise money. And it's like, my God, it's Terry Thomas. Hey, could you do something for him? Yeah. Get <laughs> the other well, public for this? Why am I watching this in the U.S.? Give him some fucking money. Yo, <laughs> yo it's... And, and you know, so, even at Terry's worst moments, I mean, it was... Um, the, the thing about Kurt Jurgens where he goes to the country and he watches the girl because you know, he make money she goes up the uh the rope it was a cute episode i i I do not harbor so much ill will to it it's the the thing with Tom Baker <laughs> I was so fucked up you know, because like he gets chopped up to so many pieces yep and I was like sort of like what yeah, The Vault of was, I mean, for me, not one of the better amicus no. uh, anthology films. Definitely and, not. and there was one, it, it got even worse, there was one really worse, although I saw it three times in the theater
0: after that so next up is and now the screaming starts which is a Roy Ward Baker job again the super bitch herself those of you who have not seen that movie Stephanie Beacham marries poor Ian Ogilvy, who clearly doesn't know what he's up against they actually retitled the film I forget what it was it was an Italian cop film and it was supposed to be called something else and because of the experience of working with Stephanie Beecham they retitled the film Super Bitch which got her really upset and she was running around trying to change the titling on it but to this day it's out on disc as Super Bitch uh, the, the whole film goes gothic horror a.l. The Black Torment but with elements of the Hound that the Basker for good measure with Beecham the unlikely ingenue and Ogilvy a rather prissy young lord of the manor and a sort of supernatural take on the whole Jane Eyre Rebecca template where Beecham has more to deal with than just the nasty old patriarch gossipy servants and a secret in the attic so to speak this time there's actually a curse from beyond the grave a weird old woodsman who may or may not also be an zombie and a severed hand crawling around the estate Uh, Peter Cushing and Herbert Lom drop by to add to the fun it's definitely not perfect in any respect but it's enjoyable enough and it has its share of gothic creeps so what's your take
1: uh, I think Super Bitch is a different Stephanie Beecham film it's actually a uh, yeah it is. it is it's a crime movie yeah and so it's not the retiling of this film no but it could Although, be because she's in it <laughs> true and actually she came stateside once and I'm sorry to say I missed her because I wanted to see if she was as bountiful as she had been She might have um,
0: bit your head off though from all of the accounts Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah. I always liked stuff <laughs> beach. I, yeah, I, I never met her I don't, you know, She's attractive I don't enough, know. but the stories are unbelievable She's so
1: bountiful She's bountiful
0: uh,
1: <laughs> um, This was always a weird movie Because Because the The it's one of those odd films. Now we're getting to this period where it's, we're getting to the seventies and so we're trying to be more freer mm-hmm. with with our uh, the filmmakers. They're trying to be more freer with you know the representation of what they're putting out there and they realize what's going on and sexy movies are being released and Hammers making sexier films, Vampire Love is, was already going out there. This is and yeah, it's a step backwards, and in a way, it's also lurid. It's one that a lurid film because, to me, you know, you have this woman who's raped, and then the visage or the specter of the rapist is threatening her, and it's just, it's, it's like, what do you do with this kind of thing? And you know what? I, I, they didn't know how to market this thing. I, I distinctly recall that they tried to market it as a horror film and then they tried to market it as a terror film like where a woman is raped and there's revenge from Beyond the Grave and they didn't know what the hell to do with this thing it's a very
0: tricky movie for them to market and I, I never really liked it, I'm sorry so next up from Beyond the Grave which is directed by somebody named Kevin Connor, who pops up in a couple of Amicus films now
2: oh we know and so.
0: Yeah. Based on stories by our Chetwin Hayes. Uh, it's sort of an actually creepy as shit template for the much later Friday the 13th TV series. This is, and you may not agree, by far my favorite of the Amicus Portmanteau films. Maybe because it's all Chetwin Hayes stories, maybe because it's among the last they made, but either way, for me, it actually works and probably will give younger or more susceptible viewers some nightmares. Peter Cushing is the guy who runs an evil antique shop where all the items are cursed. David Warner from Nightwings or the Scarifiers audio series buys a mirror after they hold a seance, winds up becoming with an evil ghost who demands blood, sending Warner a killing spray. Twist ending, he becomes the next ghost in the mirror. The effects on this can be really freaking creepy, especially if you're in the right mindset. Ian Bannon of the Doomwatch film is quite understandably unhappily married to blowsy old Diana Doris, the Shelley Winters of Britain. He ends up buying a military medal so he can sound good to an old bum he befriends who's not a pleasant, and winds up bawling his weird daughter. Literally, this was Angela Pleasance of the godsend and symptoms, so it was his daughter. She's a witch, and she does some voodoo to get rid of doors, but when ben and then falls through in his agreement to marry her, she does the same thing to him. It turns out they were, quote, answering the prayers of their brat son all along. The silliest of the stories involves scary old Mary Don Porter, once again, the protectors, and a low-level demonic force uh, that this guy inhales with a box of snuff he bought from the store. It runs way too long, it isn't funny, and everyone just camps it up Panto-style for a good half hour of running time. Thankfully, it closes on a high note when Leslie and down and eaten ogilvy by a creepy old door that, despite being set up just for show, opening to a solid wall in their kitchen, occasionally lets them enter a dusty cobwebbed old room with a grimoire, suggesting that the door and room are a trap set up hundreds of years ago to trap unsuspecting souls, and like the mirror ghost from the first episode, set the originating user free in their place. They even wind up with a happy ending, believe it or not. The one story aside, this is great stuff. I really do like this one.
1: Well, I I think that for one, I know this one was a little bit much for the usual distributors in the US for Amica stuff. And nobody wanted to touch us. So, Metro Media, which was a short lived, I get, oh gosh, what is it, Channel 5 back in the day it was an independent station in the uh, New York area. Yeah. They, they ventured into a film distribution. And so yeah, it was Metro Media. It was a local New York metropolitan area thing. They ventured into film distribution and they picked up a couple movies. The funds on Channel Five. The Funds on Channel Five. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> so Metro Media picked this up. And because nobody else wanted it. And it's like nobody knows how to market this picture. Mm-hmm. Now granted like other studios distributors had put out Amicus Anthology portmanteau films before, but why not this one? And yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It was a little more odd, a little more severe. It was like sort of like, what the fuck did we do with this?
0: Yep. And so uh, it's like the other ones were all Twilight Zone or something, and this one was the Night Gallery. It's that different.
1: It, it is that different, yeah. And and rather than severely cutting, drastically cutting the spectrum, which. You no, know, come on, folks. You reduce the running time of something. You know, it's although if you're Jerry Gross of Cinemation Industries in the mm-hmm. New York metropolitan area, you can reduce something from 102 minutes to 65, and you know, get away mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> back in these days, nobody really wanted to. Like, it's investment of money too, because yeah. you have to make, you have to make prints. So MetroMedia. To my knowledge, re- releases because I, I saw it in the theater and it's a very interesting, dark. The problem with Metro Media Prints is they did terrible, terrible color timing. Uh, everything was always on the reddish to the reddish orange tinge. And uh, yeah, if you saw these things in theater, you're like, wow, it's a shitty fucking print.
0: Yeah, I remember seeing stuff when I was a kid. And, you know, everybody's watching this stuff on DVDs and Blu-rays and 4K restorations. Now you have no idea what these fucking films look like back in, you know, the late 70s, the early 80s. You would see something in the theater and it was almost black. And you would see it on TV and it was even worse. I'm like, what the hell? That's why all those films were kind of depressing at the time. Now you watch like, oh, this is great. But very big difference. Uh, Tim Lucas from Video Watch Watchdog hit the nail on the head. It's all about the presentation, not necessarily just the film.
1: Well, yeah, uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, uh, some movies, uh, and it's, it's a, a thematically, has to be, uh, we could discuss this if it ever came up in a particular show, presentation of these kind of genre films. You know, we're talking about the limitations of the filmmakers, the limitations of the budget, of the
0: print exported and the limitations of the distributor and the exhibitor. Yeah, print's sent from place to place to place. By the time you seen them, I've been the 20th airing and from the 20th theater. And psh, What do you think you're going to get? Right, but what I'm leaning to
1: is the ambiance that this yes. shows you. It's very hard to convey to you, you guys listening to our show, hopefully. <laughs> it's very hard to convey to you what that experience is in the theater, in this time period, because, because of all these things. This is where that that term, in quotations, grindhouse came from. It's like, you get creeped out. (laughs) The movie might not have been powerful. The movie may not have been life-altering or whatever the case may be. But it creeped it, It's just something happened And you watch this And you're like
0: Wow I used to go to a yeah. It was not even a second run It was like a third run Theater mm. down in the city And Before they closed it down And changed it over Whatever the hell And it was like an Ex-Sony theater Like you know Sixplex or something But the place was falling apart And it was underneath some like, cheapo place. management I know Yeah And you would yeah, see I movies know. For dirt cheap And you would get stuff there The food was like a dollar It was crazy So we go see all kinds Of stuff there the audience makes the picture because you have these people you know day workers and nighttime whatever the hell you get these strange crowds and they're hooting and hollering at the screen yelling vomiting in the, the aisle in front of you yes this stuff actually happened somebody screaming because standing out of the chair because a rat just ran in front of them yes that happened when we were there i mean these kind of things it, it actually and this is you know recently like in the last 10 years we're not talking about even the 70s so that kind of atmosphere makes a huge difference in how you feel about the movies we loved all the movies we saw there because it was, you got this amplified, uh, what do you want to call it, ambiance that made things better than they actually were, or worse or scarier, depending on what kind of person you are. For us, it was great.
1: Yeah, 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 folks. One day we'll do a theater, uh, we'll do a show on our theater experiences, and you know we might discuss things like the time somebody wanted to blow in a theater in the '80s. But you know, that's <laughs> hopefully a nice it was story. a girl,
0: because <laughs> you know that happened too there. <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh let's we'll see anything more to say about that movie. Uh <laughs> Madhouse was the next one. Vincent Price, whose trademark role was Dr. Death, apparently, uh, announces an engagement to a buxom blonde. Later that evening, the a porno producer, who is Robert Quarry, Count Yorg himself, reveals that she was once one of his starlets. Price flips out, gets killed by Dr. Death. Price ends up going to the bug house after a nasty reveal because he finds her and her head falls off in front of him. His screenwriter pal Peter Cushing brings him to the UK after he gets out to do a Dr. Death TV series, but not before cute Linda Hayes. Eden of the confession films and Angel Blake of Blood and Satan's Claw still cute by the way I met her a couple years ago picks his pocket and winds up following him around trying to get a job or something so of course she gets killed even after he finds Cushing keeping his deformed nutjob wife in the basement he goes ahead with the project (laughs) good common sense there only to find himself set up over and over as the likely suspect in some ongoing murders both on and off set is the killer price is it Cushing the crazy wife who gives a shit it's not the worst of these kind of films and very much akin to theater of blood just without and appeal as eye candy, and a few clever Shakespearean murders to get you through it. Even Hayden's barely in the damn thing. So again, it's not terrible. It's just like, yeah, whatever. I, I always found this movie very sordid. I, I, uh, AIP
1: put this out in the U.S. and AIP didn't know what to do with this, and they they double built it with Amazon's versus the Wonder Woman, <laughs> the Italian, the Italian dubbed in English picture about. Italian Amazons doing Kung Fu? I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I think that was it, actually. Mm -hmm. And so, Madhouse was sordid, skeevy, and it was one of the... It's a turning point movie for me, because it's one of those pictures where it was just like, great poster. Yeah, they did a great poster for this, but Cushing's playing a bit of a sadistic prick. Price is playing a Flummox person. This is post-Theater of Blood. Mm-hmm. And, and Quarry's playing his usually fake prick. And so, we are watching a movie where we don't... We're not really akin... We're not liking any of the main characters. And that takes a really weird turn toward the end. And I just really did not like it. And I never have. Probably you could say in, in the CV for... Price and Cushing for the main actors. This is like a movie that few people probably discuss because yeah. it's not really a
0: well liked film. So uh, next up they actually do one which is probably one of my favorite anarchist films of all, which is The Beast Must Die. There's a strangely Bondian vibe that points to this unusual UK set Black Sploiter which crosses the most dangerous game with And Then There Were None, throws in werewolves, and updates all that old world decadence to a more modern 70s variant. The guests are caddy, Lockhart is stentorian but clearly obsessed, and everyone's more than a bit obnoxious and Milligan-esque. Uh, Lockhart has this neat setup on his palatial homes, grounds, and abutting woods, where their cameras and infrared setup all over, run by none other than Anton Differing of films like Shaw's Shatter, and by the way we did do a show on Shaw Brothers as well covering that, uh, Hammer's Circus of Horrors and Where Eagles Dare, from a cool home based multi-television monitoring communication setup. He invites a bunch of people, including Peter Cushing and Blofeld Charles Gray, suspected of being involved in werewolf-style incidents to his place for the weekend. There's a weird twist involving his wife Marlene Clark of Night of the Cobra Woman" Slaughter and, yes, we did a exploitation show as well, and Ganja and Hess, and the whole thing amounts to one of the most all-around entertaining films of its era, particularly when you factor in the cheesy werewolf break that puts you, the viewer, on the spot. Who is the werewolf? Who the hell knows? There may be more than one. There's a sort of funky score by uptight British white guy standards anyway. And everyone's doing their damnest to out-sinister and out-bitchiness each other. This film is just loads of fun. I love this fucking film. I have ever since I saw it as a kid on afternoon TV. I still loved it, just watching it again recently. So, what's your take? Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I
1: saw it in theater, and I saw it on TV, and I saw it on whatever I saw it on lots of times and it's just, it was not a movie that really did a lot for me. True, it had all these elements. Uh, Michael Gambon the in thing, you know, later of the, what's his name? The Weird Filmmaker. Michael Gambon was in a lot of his movies. Uh, Peter Greenaway. Anyway, so, so it's, it's an interesting, you know, most dangerous game, you know, trying to tie into the Black Splay genre. It's concurrent with this. The only thing I ever have that's important to me in my life is I had a poster of this movie. <laughs> and I, I gave it to Peter Cushing in nineteen seventy four. And and he he looked at it and he said, Do you want me to sign it? I said, please. He said, That looks like anime one. I said, Well it's not anime one, but somebody else because she was long dead by that time. Oh, yeah you still want me to
0: sign it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you think so, he's going to uh, film with Anime Wong? <laughs> anyway. I know.
1: I don't. I, I know. I know. He's doddering by 1974. Yeah. But, um, very nice gentleman. You love this movie. I thought it was okay. I guess if you want to, like, ring the bells on, like, all the cool stuff. You, you did it. Quite well. Uh, I just never.
0: Yeah, it was okay for me. Okay. So uh, the last three Amicus films proper were kind of a trilogy in a way. They're all directed by Kevin Connor. Uh, the first one was actually written by Michael Moorcock of the Ulrich novels and um, Hawkwind. He famously did some introductions for them back in the day. Uh, Bernhelius based on the Edgar Rice Burroughs Pellucidor novels. Uh, the t- Land of Time Forgot, At the Earth's Core, and The People of Time Forgot, all between 75 and 77. Mm. The first one, The Land of Time Forgot, Doug and Sue, being uh, Doug McClure and, Sue, and Susan Penaglian, uh, get shipwrecked in the fog and wind up rescued by a German U-boat among whose crew is Anthony Ainley, the first game master from Doctor Who. Somehow they wind up surfacing on this half-assed Lost World scenario with lots of cheap-looking dinosaur puppets and a Salvatore Beccaro look-alike of a kid. Caveman. Yes, we did do a show where we talked about the Beast in the Heat, uh, <laughs> with, who they promptly bring aboard and make a de facto crew member and tour guide. The evil chairmans get their comeuppance. There's a fight with another tribe of cavemen, and Doug McClure, the Jay Leno of the 70s, gets to run around in a Fred Flintstone outfit, roll credits. At the Earth's core is something of an outlier, as so it doesn't seem to directly relate to the other two films. This time, McClure is an assistant to and old Peter Cushing, who's doing the same goofy kids' movie Epsom on Stick he brought to the Doctor Who films a decade, earlier they've got a rocket that drills to the center of the earth just like that wendy and marvin era episode of the super friends they wind up on a caveman chain gang and that's about it the only thing enlivening this one is a fair bit of caron munro who we get to see a fair bit of if you catch my drift. and finally the people that time forgot this time third tier star patrick wayne yes he was uh, john's son and dotty old nigel bruce wannabe thoroughly walters take night Oriola exposing lila wannabe dana gillespie and princess leia meets heidi haircut sporting sarah douglas Who is much, much sexier as the dom villainous in Superman 2 than she ever gets here? Down to find McClure, but not before encountering a bunch of samurai run by a fat Buddha look-alike, guys in World War II biplanes, and still more cheap dinosaur puppets and guys in cut-rate Godzilla costumes. It's a huge improvement over the first film, but it still kind of sucks. So, uh, what'd you think about those three? (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: (laughs) I actually always liked the Land Time Forgot. Yeah. Cheesy effects, of course uh, Everybody meant the effects were cheesy There's something about it That always spoke to The perverted Child in me uh, You know, Michael Moorcock uh, I I, it out there Jerry Cornelius uh, All the Michael Moorcock, Jerry Cornelius stuff Which is very twisted, really Works for me I read other the Moorcock stuff, but I like the story. Uh, you know, it's funny. Doug McClure, who had been a uh, sort of square-jawed American, Western TV, Western American TV, Western uh, presence, uh, the Virginian, I think, or some other things, uh, went overseas. And, you know, while it might have been laughable at first, I think he did a fine job in these pictures. I think he did okay. And, um, beyond serviceable i think i think he did he did a really decent job and being that he's working with or against and uh yeah you know the, the rubber suited monsters and thing it's it's funny when i first saw this stuff i was like what the fuck but then you started <laughs> sort to of go along with it you know and and it's like a different kind of ambiance like yeah, the guys in rubber suits, but so was Godzilla back in the day. So, you know, it's it's the first Land of Time Forgot was interesting and fun. Now, but when we got to the people that Time Forgot, yes, they did they did add John Wayne's one of John Wayne's sons, Patrick Wayne, but they also want to fuck with you a little bit. They said, how can we make this a little downbeat? And I'm all one for downbeat. But people, if you want downbeat, please don't watch the Terror on AMC because you will cut your wrists after that. I, I everybody's like, watch that, watch that, and I watched that. I was like, this is fucking bleak. What are you crazy? <laughs> so I'm sorry. That's how I um, felt about Daredevil. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, I was like, I was like, everybody's raving about the Terror, and I I watched watched two episodes on AMC tonight, and like, uh, the razor's not nearby. That's a good thing. Yeah, yep. it's alright. Yeah. Um, People at the Time Forgot. Really, a decent film. You got Patrick Wayne, that's just like, you know, dashing Daredevil guy. And, um, yeah, Sarah D- Douglas before her dumb thing. But <laughs> I thought I thought it wasn't bad because the, the, the they're trying to play with this bleak weakness. And, you know, I guess I have an affinity for bleak, despairing things in my life. <laughs> you know, like Doug turns up I've been on this fucking ice thing Waiting for people to like show up all these years Are you a
0: big Radiohead fan? <laughs> <laughs> you no
1: know, I really don't like them aside from Creek, Which I think is a brilliant song But everything else is bullshit But anyway <laughs> I did not dislike this one that much Now for the last one you mentioned True, and I will agree with you Cushing tapped back into that Thing from ten years previous That doddering Doctor Who thing But it's a very, very enjoyable matinee picture. I mean it got McClure for I think a third and final amicus film where you know, he joins you know, he joins forces with this doddering doctor type and they get into this machine, they go to the center of the earth and Caroline Monroe again in one of those uplift bras, you know, and she's already kinda of buzzed me, so double uplift. Uh, it's, it's, it's a fun movie and um, the effects look a lot better as time. still men in suits, but it's also at the Earth's core has something the land at time forgotten, the people at time forgot do not have. And there's a, a bit of eeriness to the, uh, to the subterranean level stuff going on there when they get down there and they meet the yeah. people and, and the monsters, we're gonna say in quotations. There's a bit of eeriness going on and 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 Kevin Connor I think you know serviceable director I think if somebody more talented or maybe up to the editors they could have probably done wonders with that because they could have be like extra fucking creepy so I I would say out the trilogy that would be the film to like wow I might check that out but the I I don't think the others are so bad with that being said I I do want to say that Shout Factory, I believe, have put these out recently, all three of these films, at the unheard of price of nearly $30 per film. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, crazy. It's crazy because, I mean, I think people would like to see these movies, and I think they deserve an audience today. I mean, like we're talking about them, you know, whether unfavorable or favorable, the way the way we have discussions there is like people may want to take a chance and revisit <laughs> something or visit something you've never seen before. And so, guys, I, I understand that the could all that stuff. I mean, we're, we're, we're not – we have no idea what's going on with that. But if you make something so bloody high, I could see someone getting whatever the last Star Wars movie was called and getting the 3D Blu-ray for that and getting like a 1976 Cheesy movie that we're saying is a lot of fun. So yeah, Exactly, right. So um you know distributors out there, you know, gotta keep costs in mind there. You know, we're not just speaking for us, but speaking for fans or purchasing. Exactly.
0: So uh after this Sabotsky went back to Canada but tried to keep up the portmanteau film uh, idea from Amicus with two further films. These are no longer Amicus, Amicus is broken up. First the Uncanny. Peter Cushing visits grumpy publisher Ray Land from Frogs to convince him that his theory that cats are terrifying and a source of all evil or some such bullshit. There's a story about an old bag who leaves all her money to her cats. Her maid, who's actually the mistress of her own surviving relative, uh, again Susan Penaglien of the Louis Louis Jordan Dracula, kills the old bat after she catches her trying to destroy the will, only to be trapped in the kitchen and practically starved by the woman's horde of now feral cats, who by the way also ate the old lady in the meantime. Next story, an orphan kid winds up living with her mean old aunt, whose bratty daughter forces her to give up her beloved cat. So just like you know any sane person would do, she pulls out an old grimoire and gets back at the bitch too sweet. My kind of girl. but Finally, (laughs) Donald Pleasance kills his wife in a stage accident so that he could push his mistress, of all people, the brood's creepy Samantha Egger only to have the wife's cat-deliver come up, and so by the end, Milan's looking over his shoulder, terrified of cats. The film is fun, though more for the absurdity of anyone being actually scared of a cute little cat. I and mean, was what's going to Curl up in your lap and purr? Shit all over your clothes? Chase after a feather or play with a ball of string? Then, finally, he did The Monster Club in 1981, oh. which is highly entertaining, and actually has the only really, quote, scary story Amicus ever made outside of From Beyond the Grave, which is the one with the Village of Ghouls. John Carradine, who's supposed to be the story's inspiration, R. Chetwin Hayes, by the way, chats up Vincent Price at a bar, of course it's the titular club, where bands like The Pretty Things and UB40 perform between tales. Two of the stories are really pretty bad, one with Barbara Kelman and Simon Ward about a kid that kills with a whistle, and another about Britt Eklund and Donald Pleasence, a family of vampires, and that would be Van Helsing, but that last story is really a killer. Stuart Whitman doing his best Raymond, land is a producer-director doing location scouting, he finds this out-of-the-way village where it's always foggy at night and finds himself unable to escape as the villagers, all of whom are these zombie-like ghouls, live on corpses and are in need of some fresh meat. It's pretty silly on the whole, but the music and that last segment really make the film. He, As far as I'm concerned, he kind of went out on a high note. So, uh, What would you have to say about those two?
1: I never, I, I never liked The Uncanny. It uh, just never did anything for me. I've seen it like one or two times over the years. Uh, I thought it was a weak film. I, I just realized we never really covered Tyburn. I think their later output around this time period actually were was a little bit better for what it's worth. Uh, but the uh Monster Club or uh, or it's Richard Gordon. Richard Gordon, I I, I remember Richard Gordon from uh, he's the producer of Bean Without a Face. Remember him? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. It's a good film. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was in an event one time and I got lazy tongued and I said, "Monster," I said, "Monster." And he goes, "Monster!" So, as you know, fucking ninety-seven-year-old prick. <laughs> so, he uh, was he was a bit of an evil fucking prick too. So, uh, Richard Gordon would say, "Monster." Uh,
0: I hated that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it. I totally can see why.
1: I I wished it was so much better Because it was the We're talking about 1980-something, right? 81, yeah 81 It was supposed to be the last gasp Of all our favorite childhood horror icons That were still alive at the time Mm -hmm. And It was A director that was just Not well-versed in this thing and, and, And The stories were not up to snuff But I have to say that the the unfairly vilified Stuart Whitman, who actually has has done decent work in his career, no doubt about it, if uneven, uh, was really good in that episode that you mentioned, and yeah. and that one is a good one. So yeah, I agree
0: with you there. So that's basically it for Amicus, unless you had anything else you wanted to throw in. Next time, a Russian pole cabaret singer and contemporary and collaborator of Pioff, Eddie Constantine made his fame in the Bohemian Left Bank of Paris, versus as a proto-Serge Gainsbourg chanteur, but most famously is the unlikely star of a long-running series of generally hard-boiled neo-noir, but just as often self-mocking and comedically oriented crime pictures. Much beloved, oft imitated, but never paralleled, Constantine would appear in films by the likes of Jean-Luc Godard and Jesus Franco, appearing in contemporaneous and parallel series as the long-running detective novel stand by Nick Carter and his own Lemmy Caution, as well as any number of similarly minded one-off roles to which he brought simultaneous good humor, a hard-luck tough-guy noir ethos, likability, and gravitas. So join us next time as we celebrate one of the greats of French cinema, the inimitable Eddie Constantine. Watch out, baby, it's Eddie Constantine. So, uh, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Amicus. If you'd like to contact us here, comment, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter, at Weird Scenes 1. Weird Scenes at the Gold Mine, brought to you by the Big Papa Online Network and Blog Talk Radio. Yes, thank you all for
1: listening, and uh, we hope you enjoy the shows, and uh, yeah, as, as my co-host said, please comment, or email us, or contact us, and next week's, or the next show, will be Eddie Constantine, which is something that is dear, near and dear to our hearts, to put yes. the phrase, and uh, it's going to be a pretty spectacular and a more thoughtful show, because uh I think there's a lot going on with that one. So we hope you enjoyed this show. We hope you enjoy all our shows, of course. Oh, yeah. So, again, thank you for listening. Yeah.
0: Tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune into Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, Grindhouse, Drive-In, Independent, and Underground Film from the dawn of the Talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by Boardman committee. These are the province of the auteur, the Visionary, the Dreamer, the Outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? i A you ad absurd and look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks, while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G., And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network on Blog Talk Radio. on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life.
2: I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with
1: piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. Where would Uncle Al be without his Scarlet Woman, Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what
2: we discover?
0: Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the Yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality the dark side and the light from the organized to the out of the way this show is for
2: all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality
1: and found them ultimately unfulfilling
0: join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards light.
2: moving towards life Lessons in life and spirituality from an Unconventional Seeker.
0: Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Block Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment.
1: Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Hall, myself. Discuss the beloved, the cadence, the career, and the wonderful world of cult film, music,
0: television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soul-asleeping, mire of our modern age.
1: Tune in. Turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television. Right here on
0: Rear Seats inside the gold mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio.
2: <clears throat> when it comes to your education, there's no need to settle. Get the interactive and purposeful education that you and employers demand from Colorado State University Global Campus. You'll get personalized, career-driven learning created and taught by today's industry leaders. CSU Global was built to help students succeed with affordability, flexibility, and individualized support. It's time to expect better. Find your path to the career you want at csuglobal.edu, where online education isn't another thing we do, it's all we do.